0: Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summetry. It's a special pleasure to introduce to you today my colleague, Eve Tebrigen from the University of British Columbia. This particular podcast is, in fact, in the uh, NOW series for Global Summetry. It is episode 10. And uh, I have the opportunity to talk to Eve about China's leadership and uh, the growing U.S. China tensions. Now, this podcast is slightly different because, in fact, uh, the interview itself was by video and it was prepared initially for my c- class in the Global Capital Markets course at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. But the issues are very pertinent and critical, in fact, and I thought it would also be useful for us to uh, turn this video into a podcast so that the uh, audience would have the opportunity to hear Eve talking about China's uh, leadership over the last uh, number of years, and, of course, the growing tensions uh, between the United States and China. So, without further ado, uh, I'm going to turn uh, to Yves, uh, introduce him, and we'll get on with the podcast. It's my pleasure today uh, to have the opportunity to sit down with my colleague, Eve Dibrigen. Eve is the Director Emeritus of the Institute of Asian Research at the University of British Columbia. He is also the Executive Director of the UBC China Council and a full Professor of Political Science at the University of British Columbia as well. Importantly, in the context of this discussion, uh, Eve spent several years working in Japan including a stint at the Ministry of Finance, and has focused a good deal of his time on globalization, looking at China in particular. So, Eve, <clears throat> I want to explore with you today uh, kind of the development of economic policymaking in China in the last few years, and also how the political leadership uh, has tried to uh, advance uh, the political um uh, array, political architecture, uh of China, both in terms of the party and in terms of the state. Uh so um uh welcome. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. Um so let me let me start by asking you Eve um what is what has been the objective of uh the chairman, the Zhu Xi as we call him. Uh, of the party and the Zontung, the president of the uh, government in China? Is Xi Jinping's efforts simply a, uh, a power grab using his anti-corruption campaign as a way to get rid of his opponents and rivals within the party and within the government? Um, uh, why has he chosen to eliminate uh, a key feature of leadership in China since the days of uh, Deng Xiaoping, which was a two-term presidency and then uh, new leadership. What's up? Right. So uh, to, to the best of what we know, it seems
1: that what's driving uh, Xi Jinping is not is not power grab per se, is more a, a sense of moral mission. So there's really a small drive, and then a sense of uh, vulnerability. And I see three kinds of vulnerabilities. So that seems to be what's driving. Because ultimately, what he's doing has been accepted by the party, including in 2012, right, at the uh, 18th Party Congress, yeah. the entire platform, inc- the corruption campaign, everything was agreed by the collective party. Uh, before, before they, you know, maybe now they're more scared, it's harder to speak up, but in 2012, there was a collective decision for that kind of agenda, that platform. Um, and um, so the vulnerabilities that are driving this, first of all, is this middle income trap fear. So there is a functional issue where they saw the, the decline of growth coming and the need for kind of institutional change. And they knew this is a dangerous process. They, they, read, they read all this. Uh, second, there is also fear about the social change that is coming. As China has become more sophisticated and richer, the middle class has been more developed, there has been more deliberation, there has been more access to information. Clearly in the party, there has been a fear that this uh, social sophistication could overwhelm the party. And they're convinced in the party that without the party, the country will collapse. So they, they genuinely believe that the party is the anchor, is the foundation uh, that to today that China, in the midst of so much change, doesn't have time to develop th- the whole democratic system, even though some of them will accept that in the long term it could be a good idea. But they think that it's a 20, 30-year process that they can't afford to do now. Um, and then third, there's been the international vulnerability. Uh, and initially, they were completely um, fixated on TPP. I mean, the TPP was a huge shock and a pivot to Asia coming out of Obama led to a massive reaction, right, on the Chinese side. It was like five times bigger than the way the TPP was, but you couldn't go to China in 2011, 2012, 2013 and not hear about TPP day and night, right? Uh, And so there was a sense of being isolated, surrounded, and uh, and so feeling that there is no space and being vulnerable. And so that they needed to really uh, rally around a strong leadership, a strong core. Uh, and tighten the ship, right? Because they're in in danger from all sides. There is that sense. And then on the corruption side what's the driver initially. And we have to remember that Wang Qishan was appointed in June uh, 2012 before the 18th Party Congress and by Hu Jintao, not even by Xi Jinping. Um, It's uh, the fear that the, the corruption was going too far. So corruption initially was a byproduct of the Deng Xiaoping reforms. Uh, and the way he motivated them to become entrepreneurs was to keep some of the stuff for themselves, right? So uh, they would get uh, a share of the profit and they also get some for the villages that they were managing. Um, and so gradually this grew beyond proportion. Initially, it was not gross uh, perverting. It seems to have been, uh, it didn't create too much burden on growth or even on public support, even though in 89 Tiananmen was partly a response to corruption already. The students were, you know, having corruption as one of the slogans. But by by 2012 or 2011, it seems that uh, Xi Jinping was really uh, fixated on this and was terrified the people around him that this corruption could overwhelm the party. Uh, and this is borne uh, by the polls that we have at the time, right? When he started this corruption campaign, it was massively popular, has huge public support, and. Uh, therefore, um, you know, the more he took down people, the more he was popular, he was supported. So it was, you know, in a way he's a populist. <laughs> he was doing what, uh, in a way what the public wanted at that point. Um, then there is a self-accelerating feature of, of that, right? That is, he developed this very big, um, bureaucracy, you know, this, uh, you know, the this the discipline and inspection uh, committee of the party became bigger, got more staff, got more freedom. They would take down more and more people. So clearly, that's the problem, right? That is because it's extrajudicial, it's within the party. Uh, You know, it takes a life of its own. And then the more you break some taboos, the more you take down people, the more enemies you have. And so I think he found himself gradually in a position where, um, in a way, is forced to keep going forward because if he stops, if he goes backward or if he steps down, all hell will break loose and he will be captured himself, right? So there seems to be a bit of that fear factor eventually. Yeah. Uh, so clearly in terms of the two mandates, uh, the, two, uh, the two mandates limit, um, well, first of all, the presidential mandate doesn't matter very much, right? I mean, the power is the party and the army title those didn't have formal limits in the constitution or even in the party constitution. Those were norms uh, that you do. You finish after two terms. So it, it, it touched the one that was formalized in the constitution, which is the one that doesn't matter. But the idea is to have a signaling effect for the other mandates that he wouldn't leave the others. Right? That's an interesting way, by the way, to use this kind of legalistic frame to kind of signal backward to the party in the military that he's staying. Uh, But what I hear in China, even from senior judges, is that ironically, it kind of tightened the rule of law by doing this because uh, it kind of unified what was happening in the party where you already intended to stay and the formal structure in the presidency. Um, What I'm also told is this only says you, you, you can stay beyond two, but you will still need to get the collective of the party to approve it. And if the collective every five years does not approve it, he won't be able to stay. So he's not guaranteed to stay. He uh, just have an option if the collective of the party approves it every five years. So
0: that's sure. um, that's roughly how it goes. But mm-hmm. well, <clears throat> I mean, I do understand. You know, at least the early elements of the anti-corruption campaign. and It's linked to popular expression. But I guess the, the, let me take you back to the 18th Party Congress, um, <clears throat> and in particular, the Third Plenum, because within that, very strong effort uh, was laid out for uh, market reform, uh, and uh, it identified the importance of the role of the market in uh, economic uh, uh, policy and economic reform policy in China. But what we've seen uh, since then is very little of that. And in fact, um, uh, a backtracking with respect to reform, uh, specifically, particularly around the state-owned enterprises and the the continuing and, in fact, augmented role they now play with um, Xi Jinping's uh, efforts. right. So
1: that's all correct. So the third plenum was a year later, you know, to 2013 fall. Uh, Clearly, it was building on work that had been done for years, including uh, the work with the World Bank on middle income trap and that kind of work. Uh, And uh, it's a very, very broad uh, economic map. Uh, It included many things, some of which are going forward, you know, included the focus on green tech and environmental issues and and the like. It included Elements, you know, investment in education, higher ed, and, uh, and so the building, the human capital, and then IT stuff. So a lot of stuff we find later in the five-year plan. So a lot of it's still alive. But there was also a feature on continuing deliberation, the use of deliberation and consultation in policymaking, like healthcare reform. That continues. So we still have elements of deliberation and, uh, and uh, consultation continuing. But there was that big piece in the middle about, uh, yeah, about market principles, about and the language was general, but it, it did point to what the SOE reforms and making sure that there is uh, equal playing field, uh, even playing field between private sector and uh, SOEs. And there was a strong set of sentences on the importance of the private sector for productivity, innovation, and the like. So that hasn't happened. Uh, and this is a bit of a mystery, right? Because it looks so convincing at the time. Clearly there was a coalition behind, uh, and it has petered out, you know, petered out. This, this, this component has not happened, has not moved forward. Uh, I think the full story has yet to be written. We, you know, it's an in, internal battle, obviously. Something happened internally and the coalition that was pushing this somehow failed. Uh, maybe it's maybe some key members of that coalition, the pro-reform, were taken down in the anti-corruption. Maybe there there was a palace coup. I mean, there's something we don't know behind that happened because it looked quite set initially. Uh, but it, yeah, so this has stuff. One element I heard, I remember a meeting a delegation from a party school here that came to Canada. And we engaged with them in 2015, maybe on SOEs. Mm -hmm. And it was a very interesting question. And the response, some of the arguments coming on the other side was really a a fixation on inequality. Because another big uh, element in the 2012 uh, 18th Party Congress was a determination to stop the rise of inequality. Uh, including uh, the, the gap between rural, rural areas and uh, urban, but also, uh, you know, all aspects of inequality. And you would hear those cadres and party schools saying the best way to really stop the rise of inequality is to constrain the private sector and go back to the public sector because they have social responsibility. We can put all the social norms with them and, and that's how you avoid the yellow vest or whatever. So there was a social cohesion story but there's clearly a power story behind it, um, and it's a backlash. We don't know how durable that is. I tend to think, you know, I look at things in the long term. Over the 40 year of Deng shopping reform, there have been ebbs and flows. I remember studying SOE reform back in the 80s, and there was a complete defeat with the urban reform. Everyone in the early 90s was dead. Nobody was touching SOEs. And then Zhu Rongji showed up in '97 uh, and did massive SOE reform. So maybe that there's an episode in a long story. But mm-hmm.
0: Well, let me take you to um, uh, one of our colleagues, and in particular um, uh, this question of the change in direction on the economy or the un- what appears to be at least the unwillingness to move forward on uh, the uh, structural reforms of the uh, Chinese economy. And I'm pointing here to our good friend uh, Nick Lardy uh, from the Peterson Institute. And in a way, he inadvertently has seemed to capture uh, this change. In 2014, Nick Lardy uh, released um, his book called Markets Over Mouth, which really talked about the rise of the private sector economy within within China and its enhanced. Capacity for productivity, etc., and then uh, he's about to release now um, the uh, his next book, uh, which is called uh, the the state strikes back. And so, you know, I, the question is, you know, is is Xi Jinping prepared because of the party and party centralization and an acknowledgement or recognition? That decentralizing uh, the uh, the economy in China means that the party is going to be weakened. That in fact he's abandoned uh, the uh, pro- the greater privatization uh, of the Chinese economy. Yeah, I so I. From anything I have seen
1: in China, I believe there is three levels of arguments. And all three, when all three levels of arguments are at the same time, then they win the battle. So first, they are like, like everywhere. There are some uh, you know, policy kind of arguments. And I'm convinced that the arguments there that, that currently have won the battle are arguments about social responsibility, social cohesion, blah, 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 pillars in, in the community, but also issues of national champions. Because they are, they are obsessed about this issue of national champion. They have looked very much at the Korean model. They have looked at uh, cases of political economies that get swamped by, you uh, know, uh, large MNCs when they didn't have national champion. They 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 believe very much like the Japanese in the fifties, right? If you if you study the debates in Meti in the fifties and sixties, they were convinced that you have to block off FDI. You have to block off. Uh, you know, the large companies that are very far ahead and to um, and to have, uh, you know, a sort of core area to build either your infant industry or your national strengths. They have a, a great national strengths kind of logic, right? Uh, so there's those kind of arguments. Uh, there may be more. Uh, then the second level is um, there is a whole argument about the party and the control. And so that's about this obsession about social forces and maybe some economic forces uh, in a way overwhelming the control of the party. And they're convinced that without the anchor of that party, uh, the country will collapse, that they, they're they facing such centrifugal forces. I mean, that's their whatever model for, inherited from long history, that if you don't have a strong center during phases of social transformation, transformation or economic transformation. China is so diverse that it falls apart. So that would be the charitable way to explain it. Uh, and then there is a third level, which is uh, probably a, a person battle. Uh, and I would not be surprised if some of the advocates of the third plenum were not taken down in the anti-corruption, or happened to be associated with some corruption in one way or the other. And so some champions were taken down. So there must be a battle at the level of ideas, a battle at the level of power, and a battle at the level of people. Uh, and And so, in those battles were won by the coalition right now that that has crystallized around SOEs. and and you, and that 's what Nick Fladi is tracking i you know I tend to think if the whole dynamic of the forty year Deng Xiaoping period the post mao period remains valid, uh, then there will be a pushback later because this is we know it 's an impasse if the model loses its dynamism because most in innovation, most competitiveness, more, uh, most um, you know, strengths will come from the private sector. The SOEs have low productivity, low competitiveness in the end. And, um, and it's too conflictual because this is a model that's not sustainable with the global open economy. So if, if they keep their sense that China has had for 40 years, there will be at some point a correction and a, and a pushback. The pushback may be forced in part by the, by the current negotiation with the U.S., or maybe at some point internal, and coalitions will come back and say, look, we are kind of losing. Uh, that's how, would, you know, the Deng Xiaoping 40-year period has been back and forth, ebb and flow, and battles and competition of ideas and coalitions. Now, if that period is over, that is, we have gone to a completely centralized system of fear, then we may have a longer uh, period without such ebb and flow. But yeah. I still
0: doubt it, you know. Well the problem, I guess you know I take I take your point that it could be uh, a period of uh, contention and debate and, and so forth in, in terms of the Chinese leadership. but you know uh, forty years today in the 21st century around the global economy is not forty years ago with Deng Xiaoping in the 70s and 80s uh, and and it seems to me, 40 years may, would be way too long uh, to recalibrate uh, uh, the structure of the Chinese economy. I didn't mean 40 years in that sense, right? I, I, I just meant uh, the framework.
1: I still see Xi Jinping as part of the post Deng period. I don't, I'm, I don't think, you know, like Elizabeth Economy would say that it's a third phase. For yeah. me, it's a part of that 40-year paradigm. Uh, but within that 40-year paradigm, the, the flow we, was, we we saw was really a cycle of five to seven years. Uh, so, you know, even on the Deng, there was push one way. Well, on the Deng, it was even uh, combined, right? It would go one step forward on liberalization and one step backwards with Chen Yun and other pushing back. And so it would liberalize TVs and block SOEs or it would liberalize agriculture market and Tighten up the party somewhere else, right? So they, they used to do that, and or they had uh, you know four year, five year period with Hu Yaobang, Bang Jiao all liberalization, and then a complete backlash, and then the backlash goes for four five years, and then they go on. So the cycle is not forty years. Within that forty year period, is more of five seven year cycle.
0: Okay. Well, let me let me turn uh, then uh, to kind of the you know kind of the view of China as an emerging. Uh, power in the uh, certainly in the global economy already but uh, also in 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 geopolitics as well um, Xi Jinping uh, ha- has raised and raises periodically this idea of the China dream and what do you take as what what does he mean when he when he talks about the China dream oh
1: I China Dream is, I mean, so some people make a whole philosophy out of it, and they connect to all kind of literature and all kind of stuff. For me, it's very simple. Everything I've heard and uh, in China about it is Michael Spence's book, you know, it's the two-century-long search for China's modernity, the, the path to modernization. China's search for modernization, that was Spence's title, and that's the same story. Uh, it's... China was the center of you know global economy along with India for eighteen you know for two thousand years and then eighteen hundred is a huge trauma. They do not that it, they miss it. Now there's new research showing that actually even under the Qing dynasty there was a struggle to steer reform and the like. But uh, essentially. Um, you know, the late Qing dynasty reformers did some stuff. They changed some stuff in the bureaucracy. They, they invented a new paradigm of good governance. They even, uh, you know, started translating things like democracy. Sun Yat-sen added to it. Chiang Kai-shek did some modern bureaucratic innovation and stuff. But, you know, and then Mao continues that process. And then, but they... You know, it's a huge trauma that how you can go from being the center of the universe and this sort of core civilization to being picked up, you know, by into pieces and massacred by the Japanese. Right? I mean, and so they they know that they're halfway through, and so the story is to complete this, and they have a whole bunch of targets to become a developed country by twenty forty nine. Uh and so it's targeting GDP per capita, you know, being a, a prosperous society, to be a global power, to be et cetera, et cetera, to be safe, modern and back to where they were, right? That's a return to greatness. That's that's what it is. But they do mean it, right? I mean that this is at the heart, in a way it's not different from uh for Kyohei for the Japanese during the Meiji. Uh, or, you know, what What really drove, I was just watching a documentary on the Métis bureaucrats in the nineteen fifty, Métis, right? 50s and 60s. It's the same spirit. It's like, we, we don't want to be vulnerable anymore. We're going to come back to, uh, you know, top level and we, nobody will look down upon us. Uh, the, the French under the Gaulle is quite similar, right? And so they have a great drive to, it's about dignity as a civilization and it's about also uh, economic targets and all this mm-hmm.
0: So so, do you think, I mean, you know, obviously it's a bit of a, a metaphor, however you want to describe it, but I guess the idea, I mean, does the Chinese leadership today, Xi Jinping in particular, but you know, obviously those more broadly, those around him, do they see China becoming, in effect, uh, another superpower uh, like the United States and deep? Even potentially challenging the United States, maybe maybe on geo-economic uh, context principally, but also on the geopolitical uh, in terms of uh, in terms of global power. What what exact where exactly do they think China needs to be in the future? So, in terms of do they have a grand plan, you know, to control
1: the world and take on the U.S.? My answer to that would be not really. With some exceptions, (laughs) so there's no grand plan. Uh, You know, they actually. I was just reading this book just came out this month, a grand narrative, um, right? By uh, Klaus Maulmann. He's the he's actually the vice president of of Free University of Berlin, but he he was the long term director of the China Center of Free University of Berlin. A great scholar, Um, and you know the, the whole. China Dream or the China? What's driving China is inward, uh, and it's very pragmatic. You know, it's step by step. is That we want to, you know, we first of all is defensive. We 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 never want to be vulnerable like we were. So second of all is to be to uh, you know to radiate again as a civilization, uh, and and they will move step by step to get what they need. Right. So now they need raw materials. They need markets. So they, that's where they kind of reach for that, uh, but. It's not. Um, there is no no one making a target of redesigning the world. There, there is no blueprint for the world coming out of China. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an inward process, and that process was okay. On the Deng shopping was mostly, um, you know, they could fit within the constraints of the world as long as the U.S. let them give them space. Now because they're bigger and they, they interact with the world rules. And so they need to start to tweak some of the world rules so at least be part of them. Uh, so they can't do their domestic growth without getting into global governance. But that's the new thing. But it's without a big plan, a grand target of where they want the world to be. And they, and they would rather not take on the US. You know, uh, they would rather reach the target and leave the US where they are. But there are areas where, unfortunately, it can't be avoided. So if you are as big as China and you are kind of retaking the place you were, well, having the U.S. aircraft fly over Hainan is getting too close to comfort, right? Because there is usual patrols very, very close to Hainan bays uh, by the U.S. Or having uh you know no access to the pacific ocean that's getting too close to comfort so that's where you see the frictions and that's where these china sea south china sea taiwan stuff comes into action but it's not like they want to take over the whole pacific it's more there is that you know that you know they feel really they bump into limits right uh and it's no different that if you try to have chinese fly over cuba uh, or have a base in Cuba, you know, it's not like the Americans would like it, right? Uh, so there is that kind of vital space uh, issue, which that's mostly what's driving the friction. Um, and then there is, uh, you know, of course, uh, presence in
0: terms of markets and raw materials, which starts to be intrusive everywhere. Uh, yeah, no, that, that's fair. Uh, yeah. You know, that's certainly natural resources and the geo-economic, but let's just try to, Complete the kind of geopolitical, at least in the immediate in term. I mean, you you've mentioned, you mentioned Hainan Island and, and and the flights and surveillance. And I take that point, but I mean, uh, it's a it's a bigger issue if you're talking about really turning the South China Sea into a Chinese lake. That that's distinct, and there's lots of competition there. And it's even further if you then uh, suggest that. Um, the, the Japanese position on the East China Sea is not appropriate. And uh, so the, the question is, is this distinct? I mean, is this just tactical stuff that, you know, the, uh, the PLA and the P, uh, PLAN kind of uh, move in? Or is, is that you're suggesting it's not a grander design than that? Right. I, so I, I would answer
1: that in two ways. One is in terms of the policy content and one in terms of the players because there is an in, inside battle about it, right? I, I come uh, into this uh, not as an you know IR black box guy, but more domestic politics. And clearly there's a tug of war within China on this. They, the whole Chinese government is not unified on this. Um, so in terms of the policy content, I think that they have gotten a sort of Idea that the the structure. If you look at a map of the whole Asia and the Pacific Ocean, they have come up to consensus that that map is really too tight for them. Uh, it's a t- it's a map inherited from the colonial times. So why are uh, the French are all over Polynesia? Why uh, ok- 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 Okinotorishima is a submerged rock which allows Japan to control an entire EEZ, uh, Which by the rules of what was ruled on the South China Sea would be squashed, right? Because it's it's an underwater feature. So all those things were taken uh, in the colonial times or in a early time when China was weak. Uh, and uh, and essentially, also, it gave the U.S. after the war the full control of the first island chain and then even second island chain and all this. So the, the idea is like, well, this is a little too tight, right? We, this was unfair to start with. Uh, we... We wish there would be flexibility here to kind of have a more fair situation, given how close to us it is. And and clearly they're trying to get uh, easy access to the Pacific Ocean, right? Which is hard, actually, because the first island chain bothers them up, right? So there is that friction. So there's no question that there's friction. Um, and that, on the East China so East China Sea has two pieces, right? There is the East China Sea. Uh, the fact that the Chinese start to fly everywhere and have submarines everywhere and go through all the straits and all this—that's that stuff. And then there's the the Battle of the Islands, Diaoyu Senkaku, which actually are not that important strategically. They they kind of inward from the first island chain, so they don't really help. Even if China had them, it wouldn't help them because there's still the first island chain behind them. Uh, that is a more symbolic issue. So I would carve it out. You know, it's a domestic politics symbolic issue. Um, then uh, the other aspect is there is the PLA within the structure has been trying to, you know, to expand its budget and its power, as they always try. <laughs> you know, military establishments always do this. Um, and I think they have had a plot to, to build islands on the South China Sea, and they were pressuring Hu Jintao to let them do it, and he kept saying, no, I can't do it, in part because the economy coalition would say this was jeopardized uh, China's access to globalization and to the global order. It's too risky. Uh, But somehow Xi Jinping in 2012 gave them green light. And not only gave them green light, but on top of it, they may have splurged, right? I'm not even sure that when she authorized it, that I'm not even sure if if he authorized every detail of the plan that eventually was, I mean, that's my own suspicion. I can't prove it, but I would suspect that the the military went even beyond. They went to the max of what they could do. You know, like, They don't just do a small runway, right? They do two-kilometer runway, and then they, they splurged, right? Um, so that that is surely the, res- uh, the result of domestic competition. And maybe because Xi Jinping was taking on so many enemies, he was you know, taking on the entire security system with Zhou Kong and the entire Zhou Kong network. Then it, it put down the top three leaders of the PLA, Uh, with his anti-corruption, and they were completely corrupt, there's no question. Uh, Then he took down political leaders and the like, and it's possible, and he wanted to do economic reforms, so it's likely that he made a deal with the PLA that, fine, I'll let you have your islands. Uh, And then when they went beyond, I I, I studied enough, the Japanese, I have a bit of a quantum army kind of model there, they may have pushed a bit the envelope, right? And and then you can't stop them back afterwards because it's very hard politically to say, hey, guys, you're going too far. Then you look like you don't defend national sovereignty. Uh, so there may have been that kind of tug of war going on, which is the, the typical danger. The quantum army danger is the ultimate nightmare when your local army on the ground ends up doing more than what you wanted them to do, but you can't pull them back because politically it's suicide. Um, so something of that sort has happened. Uh, and um, I think it's more tactical it's part of bureaucratic politics and regional bottleneck is not part of a master plan. But in the South China Sea, it's overreach. That is, it's, it's extremely costly in terms of side effect, and it's very risky. Um, and so the outcome is not great, but um, it probably happened without full calculation. And they, and they thought the U.S. was weak because of the financial crisis.
0: Uh, fair enough. Although, you know, clearly part of that look tactically in the overreach, of course, isn't just with the United States. It includes uh, smaller powers, but nevertheless relevant powers, Vietnam, uh, Philippines, uh, you know. But with Vietnam,
1: you know, with Vietnam, they have pulled back. You know, they, they challenged Vietnam three, four years ago with their platform. They, they want the divided zone and Vietnam was so viciously responsive that essentially what I hear in China is like, okay, we don't mess with the Vietnamese, right? Yeah. So they haven't built any further Island in, in areas contested with Vietnam. So with Vietnam, it's like, okay, we kind of have a, a piece of the brave. They don't mess too much if it's Vietnam anymore and they won't do it.
0: Okay. But
1: they Fair went, enough. they built in areas contested mostly with Philippines.
0: Yeah, uh, and, yeah. uh, Currently, the leadership there may well, at some level, permit it. But nevertheless, it does show you uh, what the consequences are, even if policies that aren't well thought out or the unintended consequences of policies that are uh, well thought out even. Right. I mean, a good clue for what
1: I'm saying is what happened in Doklam, Mm -hmm. the, the battle with India. Uh, yeah. At the time of the BRICS summit. Yeah. Uh, so that was uh, 2017 summer. We know, we know afterwards and it's been reported that actually Xi Jinping had not authorized it, the move by the PLA right. uh, to build that extra, you know, that extra road and that extra stuff. And of course, India went ballistic and moved very big. You know they, they move in a big way. Um, and apparently Xi Jinping was curious. Um, and, The clue we have is that uh, several of the top generals who had been involved were purged in September. Mm -hmm. The first, Xi Jinping ordered the walk back because the whole BRICS summit in Xiamen was jeopardized by this. So you had to walk back, essentially, uh, which is interesting. And then uh, several of the top generals involved, you know, rank five and four in the ranking, were purged in September. uh, Two of them. And so I think this is an interesting smoking gun. And I heard this from uh, senior diplomats not from other countries, but that observed closely. They, they convinced that this was one where it was okay. overreached by the PLA. Okay. Which kind well, of gives us a loop
0: of stuff going on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's, you know, we're, we're coming to the end of our, our discussion. Really appreciate the, your time. But let me throw it into the framework. You and I have talked a little bit about it privately, but I wanted to get your kind of, take on it again. This is the uh, recent piece, actually January 29th, I think in the FT uh, by uh, uh, Martin Wolf, who wrote a piece called Challenging the One World, Two Systems um, uh, kind of environment. And I th- I think it's a very important piece because what, what in a sense um, uh, Martin Wolf is saying is, you know, this Notion of the resurgence of a, or the creation of a new Cold War um, now U.S. China as opposed to U.S. Russia really misses the point because um, un- unlike uh, the U.S. Uh, Soviet Union, uh, you know, traditional Cold War, th- this is quite different. What we've got here is tight interdependence between um, uh, the United States and China. Not to mention. Everybody else in the global economy, and so the question is, is: If do you accept that that kind of perspective, which means that you know it, it drives one to a combination of competition, which clearly there is both in the geopolitical and in the geostrategic realm between China and the United States, but also to cooperation to keep the constraints on. And if you accept that, and if you see this kind of mix of competition and cooperation as a necessary ingredient within the one world, two systems environment, where do you think it's possible for the United States and China to, we know where they can compete, that's, that's not a problem, but where do you think they can collaborate? Mm. Uh,
1: okay, I'll start first by saying, why Martin Wolf wrote this is is a reaction to the 2018 backlash in the U.S. and yep. the emergence of even the idea of decoupling. Uh, and what's driving that U.S. reaction is first uh, the fact that um, you have more and more security consequences of the rise of China. Uh, and especially you have more and more dual-use technologies like AI and other things where um, and the Internet and all this, where there's a sense that as as China integrated and it got access to all the technology, et cetera, it's become extremely uh, threatening on the security side. And then there's also on the U.S. side, there are more and more hawkish people who think, well, China is at 65% of GDP of the U.S. Uh, you know, if there's any chance to stop this hegemonic transition, this is now. So there is that temptation of, it's, it's in whatever you actually think. Uh, uh, Alison has some truth, right? That is the the two cities trap is real in the sense that you know when you had that sixty five percent moment, you would love to find a way to stop it, right? <laughs> and so there are people in Washington who are thinking would rather stop the whole game of globalization and let it run its course to hundred percent, and let the Chinese uh, pass us because once they reach hundred percent in ten years and then you keep going another ten years, then they're unstoppable, right? The military strengths will be strong, um, so. So the U.S. is going through that backlash and, and there is this new concept of decoupling. Let, let's try to decouple all the supply chains and decouple the technology chains and, and move to a, a really separated world of Cold War kind of world. And Martin Wolf making that point here, number one, that you guys are dreaming because you can do a Cold War when you're dealing with Russia where you have very little integration, economic integration. But here you're talking of among the most economically integrated economies in world history. Very, very integrated, very complex supply chains that integrate many other countries. So the unpacking process would be extremely messy, extremely costly, would destroy innovation, destroy growth, create more social pain, and would probably be (coughs) conflictual. That is, we don't have a roadmap to decouple something that is that much coupled. (laughs) Uh, There would be very, very abrupt Positions or um, policy changes on, say, by the U.S., which would be threatening to China. China would take countermeasures, and then you have you can have a hysteric, uh, or you could have a self-accelerating process that will look more like the 1930s. <laughs> you, you don't have a neat way to decouple, and so some of it is there. Maniwal is like, guys, you can't do this, right? there is no. So we have to be mature with what we have. Um, and that leads us to this complexity, right? How do we do this combination? Uh, and in terms of the other premise, is can we re- are we really moving to two worlds? Well, at one level, it's not true because unlike the Cold War, the Chinese don't have an ideological basis uh, to challenge the the Western liberal order. Actually, they adopted the Western liberal order. They they buy the market. They I mean they they buy the market as long as they can win in it. There is a bit of that mercantilist view on it, but they, they don't have, they're they have not communists. <laughs> um, and and uh, so they're willing in principle to work within the same set of, of global rules. This is where we see two worlds, because in practice, uh, we start to see a complete break of two technology, two internets, essentially, uh, with uh, two systems of AI, two systems of e-commerce, that a uh, two system of, uh, you know, WeChat versus uh, WhatsApp and the like, and uh, that are getting disconnected and that is happening in practice. And this is, this is quite a, a problem uh, because it's at the center of the global economy. So if you disconnect that piece, how do we deal? And can it be reconnected? Currently, there's so much mistrust and it's so complicated because it's in, it's impacting security and it's impacting domestic policy, domestic governance. The Chinese feel that if they open the door to Facebook and WhatsApp, they're going to have a revolution. They're going to have an Arab Spring. So they feel so threatened by it that they won't do it. And the U.S. feel so threatened by Chinese AI that they want to completely destroy Huawei and others. So, uh, so we that's driving part of the conflict. Now, to go back to your question, so this is a huge, huge issue. How do you deal with it? How do you stabilize it? Can there be a a zone of cooperation and zones uh, where you respect each other's security sphere, I hope they can find a way. And that's at the heart of the negotiations today. But we don't see it yet. Uh, where there can be cooperation is there are many other sectors, right? Anything about environmental issues There's a huge area for cooperation, uh, you know, including creating together the green economy that we need. We need a green economy within 20 years. We're going to have to have zero emission in 25 years, right? No more carbon in 25 years to get to two degrees. Uh, So actually, we need them to pull their forces together. Uh, But of course, it's not really happening. Uh, And in general, they both depend on that global economy. They don't want a global economy collapse. They want a global trading system. They want a global investment system. Both of them will suffer immensely without it. Uh, And they must know it. So, There should be a whole range of things, you know, in terms of maintaining the global economy, some degree of macroeconomic coordination, some degree of conver. I mean, they have converged on development. You know, the U.S. has accepted the AIIB, and say, five percent of the projects of AIIB are done with World Bank or with ADB or with uh, etc. The Japanese and the Chinese are finding modus vivendi on Belt and Road. They're going to do Thailand together. High-speed train. So those kind of stuff can converge, you know, where we accept the Chinese presence and firepower, but they accept rules and norms that are, you know, best practices on environment, on transparency, and you know, all kind of stuff that come from the West or Japan. There is room there for compromise, um, but the key is how do you, you know, how do you carve out the the big obstacles on technology and then, uh, you know, the SOE on the SOEs. It's on technology, actually, there is a bit of zero-sum game, right? Because uh, the, the Chinese want to keep their chance, and they they don't want to they want to find a way to not be thwarted. But on SOE, this is sort of an impasse. So if they get pushed to reopen the game, it's actually good for them. <laughs> um, but so that's that's the essence today of that battle, that confrontation.
0: Yes, although one accepts too that uh, it's partly uh, current uh, current uh, U.S. leadership in particular uh, that you know is partly driving this, and, and that may or may not change uh, over a period of time, and also you know a question mark, and you would have a better sense of it as to what how the Europeans might well form, you know, another element within uh, the overall uh, uh, one world, two systems, and also, I would say, you know, the Japanese as well. I mean... Well, so this is where this book gets interesting.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And uh, at the conclusion, uh, essentially he's saying that uh, the U.S. has won the battle, the battle of ideas, the battle of system, the battle of the liberal order in the way the Chinese accept it. Uh, but the key is to give space to the rest within that system, accept some power transfer. Right. That's the reality, and also accept to bring new voices. So he concludes by saying things like As long as liberal Americans believe that they have the most liberal minds in the world, they will never wake up and understand the closed mental universes they have boxed themselves into. Uh there is the problem of intellectual superiority, there's the problem of messianic impulse, and then there is the issue um, You know, the West, in a way, has done more than any other civilization to elevate the human condition. Uh, it would be a great tragedy if the West were to be the world's primary instigator of turbulence and uncertainty at the hour of humanity's greatest promise. If this were to happen, future historians would be puzzled that the most successful civilization in human history failed to exploit the greatest opportunity ever presented to humanity. So that's Kishore Mabubani. <laughs> And in some truth to it. In a way, today, there is more threat coming out of the risk of the U.S. destroying the global order that it created in order to stop China from rising uh, as a side
0: effect. Well, that, I don't, think, that, I don't think that's the link, but I mean, it, yeah. may, it may be a consequence. And, and having said that, there clearly are more players in the game than just uh, the United States and China. Uh, notwithstanding their critical importance in the overall game uh, and uh, and in particular the geo-economic one.
1: Yeah, the other risk is the more that confrontation plays out, as it's playing out now, the more the global liberal coalition in China is weakened and the hawks, the kind of, I told you so, right? We couldn't trust them. We couldn't give our destiny to this global order uh, kind of guys, you know, who want islands and we want control of resources and stuff and they don't trust market, that coalition is getting stronger and they're circling the wagons. So if we go on for too long, then it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, that's well, one big we'll risk. And the same I'll on have,
0: the U.S. We'll have to call you back for another another engagement and discussion, but I do want to thank you, Eve, for the time that you've uh, taken and spent with us uh, on these issues really appreciated I know some of the folks here uh, in the classroom uh, will be very pleased to see you again having um, enjoyed you uh, back at UBC thank you Alan and hi everybody (laughs) keep well (laughs) thanks a lot
1: you've been listening to the global symmetry podcast with Alan Alexandrov this episode was edited by Kyle Fulton And the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.